I'd invite you to open up the book of Judges with me this morning, and you can go ahead and do that. However, you should know that we're not going to be camped in one passage today. We're going to be bouncing around quite a bit. We concluded our walk through the entire book of of Judges last week, came to the end, uh, the bitter end, as it were. Today, we're going to be kind of overviewing the book and then observing some takeaways that we might reflect upon as we consider our time through this book. We're going to walk through the overarching storyline of the book, remind ourselves of where we have been in order to reflect upon and bring into our lives the lessons that we can learn from this book. So we will be bouncing around to various places. This might be one of those kinds of sermons where rather than tracking through a particular passage of Scripture, you get that notebook paper out and you start jotting down the different references as we go along uh, because there's just a variety of texts that we're going to cover, even going back between Old Testament and New Testament texts as well. So let's do this. Let's just walk through the overarching storyline of the book once again, remind ourselves of where we've been. We noted at the beginning of our study that this is a theologized history for the people of Israel. The original human author had a point and a purpose in mind as he wrote the text of Scripture. It was written for a specific prophetic purpose into the lives of the people. And as we have seen through this book, this book shows us what happens when we refuse to live under the rule of the King of Kings and go our own way instead. The book opens where Joshua ends with the people engaged in conquest in the land and settling in the land. However, we immediately notice that there's something not quite right, that there are things wrong immediately. Partial obedience and seemingly just just small failures dot the landscape as we begin to work through the early portions of the book. And by the end of chapter 1, we have the narrator explaining that the people did not fully drive out this people group or that people group, but rather were forced to settle in the land with these people groups that God said to drive them out. So we're forced to ask the question, well, why? Was, was God not powerful enough to grant them victory over these people groups? Why was it that they were not able to complete their task? And chapter 2 offers us an explanation of what was happening. They had begun to walk in disobedience to the commands of the Lord. And so in chapter 2, verse 2, God says, You have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? And what we see through the rest of the book is the fruit of the seeds that were sown in Judges chapter 1. The cycles of the judges that everyone recognizes, right? Everyone sees the cycles as it goes through. The people live in security within the land. They fall into sin, so God brings them into suffering. They, They cry out in supplication to the Lord for salvation, which He grants, and so they live in security once again, only to fall into sin. And the cycle goes round and round and round and round. In chapter 2, the narrator himself sketches out that process. I'm going to read 
Judges chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandment of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so, we see the cycles roll on throughout the book. First, we saw men like Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, and there's not much by way of of negative statements made about these individuals, but even so, there are still small hints that there are things that just aren't quite right. Ehud relied upon deception and treachery to deliver the people. As we rolled into chapters 4 and 5, we saw the stories of of Barak and Deborah and how Deborah, yes, she is lauded for her character and she, she is what she ought to have been, and yet Barak is a coward who does not trust the word of the Lord. From there, we saw Gideon, a man who needed not one, not two, not three, but four miraculous signs from God that he would be victorious. And when he finally ends up being that mighty man of valor that the angel of the Lord identified him as, he ends up being a tyrant who wages war on his own countrymen. And when everything settles down, he, the people come before him and want to make him king, and he refuses that in name refuses the title, and, and even in that moment, he utters the words that, that, that it was actually the solution to the cycles within the book. It, this is exactly what the people needed. He says in chapter 8, no, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. I mean, that's the solution right there. That's what the people needed. That's what, that, that was the way to break the cycle. That's the way out. And yet, despite those words, Gideon still collected tribute as king, set up his ephod as as an idol of worship as king, multiplied wives unto himself as a king, and named his own son Abimelech, which means, my father is king. And then the story of Abimelech, who grew up to be a thorn in Israel's side, he ruled by treachery and died by treachery. In chapter 11, we saw the tale of Jephthah, a man who he knew his history and was able to argue his case against an invading forces, and yet he failed to know the law of the Lord and thus ended up offering his own child, his own daughter, as a human sacrifice, leaving him with no offspring to rule after he died. Chapter 13 began the story of Samson, 
child of promise who would begin to save his people from the Philistines. Though he was to be a Nazarite, he lived his life following after what seemed right to him within his own eyes, which ultimately blinded him from the traps that were set for him. And to add to the irony of it all, it cost him his eyes before costing him his very life. And Samson was the last of the judges that ended the cycle, but it did not end the book. The last few weeks we've been examining chapter 17 through 21, two stories told to illustrate what Israel, what, what was, what it was, fumbling over my words there, meant to illustrate what Israel was like as a self-guided people. Kings unto themselves, they did what was right in their own eyes. It led to the idolatry of Micah, his Levites, and eventually the entire tribe of Benjamin. We saw their aimless drifting. The Levite was looking for a place. The, the Benjamites were looking for a place, all the while ignoring the direction of the Lord. We saw the inhospitality of the Gibeonites and how they sought out homosexual gang rape and then settled for gang rape of the Levite's concubine. And the Levite then possibly murdered his concubine and divided her into 12 pieces and sent her throughout the land. And last week we saw the aftermath of that episode. The people respond by waging a holy war only to seek to find legal loopholes within their vows as they sought to preserve the tribe of Benjamin, forcing 600 women to be the wives of those who defended the rapists. That's a 30,000-foot flyover of the book of Judges. Today, I, I went back and I counted. This is the 21st sermon from the book of Judges, and our last. It has taken us seven months to get through this book. Yeah, that started back in February. I want to offer us today seven takeaways from the book of Judges as we have taken our seven-month study. Seven takeaways from the book of Judges as we reflect upon where we've been. The first, sin doesn't start at level 19. And I use level 19, that's chapter 19 is really the low point of the book of where we see the city of Gibeah and the things that they did within that chapter. By the end of this book, we see the shocking, the horrifying, the heartbreaking, the, the despicable things that were happening within the land. And it just shocks us. It's like, what in the world is happening here? We didn't see these things in the depth of the people. That didn't happen back in chapter 1 or 2. Why? Why did this not happen back there? Well, sin never begins back at this point. Sin doesn't begin at level 19. It doesn't begin at this incredible depth of point. Sin is deceptive. And when we look at those big sins, we look at what happened in the city of Gibeah, and we go, oh my goodness, how, how could that happen? That, I can't imagine ever getting to that point where that would be something I would do. 
The reality is, is our enemy doesn't tempt us with those big things at the start, right? It always begins at a much more tolerable level, something that, that doesn't, doesn't offend us quite so much, a level that's easier to swallow. This small incomplete obedience here, a little deviation from the Word of God there. And after you're comfortable with that sin, and, and you, you, you begin to, that, that just becomes more of a habit within your life. It's only then, well, that sin doesn't quite satisfy my itch here, or doesn't quite bring me what I want. There's something more that I want here, and so we're, we're tempted then to, to move on to the next level of whatever the sin might be. And it only begins to progress from there. With different sins, this looks in different ways. For lust, it might begin with lingering eyes. Move on to pornography before ending in something much more serious. Adultery never begins with adultery. It's almost always preceded by, by an emotional affair where one spouse begins to confide in a person of the opposite gender who is not their spouse, and they begin to feel a connection there, and then as they say, one thing leads to another, and eventually, adultery is the culmination. But it doesn't begin at that breaking point. It doesn't begin at this, this, this huge, earth-shattering, life-altering moment. It, it always begins back here with these slight deviations, these incomplete obediences. And then it progresses. This is why we have this admonition from Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. This is Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Sin doesn't begin at this earth-shattering, life-altering moment, but it, as we sow seeds of, of small sins here, it, we will reap the destruction of that later on within our lives. James also describes this progression as he warns us about our flesh in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The sinful desire at the beginning, well, that wasn't murder itself, but it could lead to that. Your covetousness, that, that wasn't that fighting and that quarrel at the beginning, but it leads to that. Our sins don't begin at, at these massive points. It doesn't begin with, with this, what we see happening in Judges 19. But the whole point of the book of Judges was to show us that, that when we neglect the word of the Lord, when we begin to deviate back here, we go off course, and before long we are down the road on this pathway, so far removed from the things of the Lord, so far from what God has said is good and right, and we don't even recognize ourselves in the midst of these things. At, at the time, early on in the book of Judges, I used this illustration of this, 
of an airplane as it's flying. If, if an airplane gets just one degree off course, it, it may not seem like much at the beginning, but you continue on that course, you'll be miles and miles off by the end of it. If you give sin an inch, it will take a mile. It is deceptive in this way. It makes us think that we can get away with with the little things and everything will be okay. And it promises satisfaction and joy in the moment of that sin, but it cannot deliver. And it only leads us further down the pathway away from our Lord if it is not addressed. Sin does not start at level 19, which is why the second takeaway from this book, we need to seek to purge the evil that is among us. I don't know why it's not advancing for me here. I'm trying to get it to go, but it's not. Purge the evil that is in or among you. You know, Jesus gives us these radical sounding words. It sounds radical to us, but there's an important principle here in this text, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, he writes, If your right eye causes you to sin, take it out, no, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be go into hell hell. What Jesus is teaching us in this text, it is better to practice these radical forms of restraint for your sin than to die within your sins. It's better to cut it off and to remove it from you. Get it away from yourselves. It only leads to destruction, so destroy that now. different points, I've counseled individuals who've struggled with, with different kinds of sins, and just one example of individuals struggling with the sin of, of pornography, and I would challenge them, are you willing to completely get rid of the access to the internet within your house, to cancel your internet subscription, to get rid of your computer? Are you willing to, to go from a smartphone to a dumb flip phone in order to remove the temptation from you? How far are you willing to go? That same kind of logic can be applied to any form of sin that we might struggle with. How far are you willing to go? Are you willing to do what might sound radical, that might sound foreign or insane to us? Oh, how could I live without my smartphone? Well, we did just fine with it 15, 20 years ago, right? How far are you willing to go? And I, what I want us to challenge us with today is that the answer to that question should be whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. I don't want to displease my Lord. He has saved me from my sin. He has died for that sin that I'm struggling with. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to live a life that is pleasing to Him, and therefore, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get me off this pathway of sin and onto the pathway of righteousness, I want to do everything and anything that I possibly can by the Spirit of God in order to rid this sin from my life. So we must pursue 
the principles of, of putting off sin and putting on righteousness, as Paul says in Ephesians and, and Colossians. We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about the importance of, of purging out the evil that is among you. Remove the leaven from your midst. He uses that illustration and it's a powerful one when we understand it. The concept of leaven or yeast, it's small, right? It's, it's, it's even microscopic. A little bit on its own, it doesn't have much of an effect, right? At least it doesn't have much of a visible effect. But given time and the space and the environment for growth, it will eventually not only permeate an entire lump of dough, but it begins to get on to everything that it comes into contact with and even into the air itself. So when Paul says to purge the evil, this, this picture of, of removing the leaven is to speak of seeking out any area of life where the infestation of sin has set in, is to cleanse everything. That is why Paul used that as an illustration in, in the, with the church in Corinth and to exercise church discipline on a wayward brother. He uses that language of purging out the old leaven because it doesn't just ruin a person. It can ruin a community. So each of us have this responsibility within our own hearts and our lives to, to be seeking out and seeking the Lord's guidance and help of removing sin within our own hearts. But even as a corporate body, when we become aware of unrepentant sin within the body, the process of church discipline is laid out for the purpose of promoting holiness and preserving God's church. So we must seek out and purge the evil that is in or among us. In the book of Judges, as we saw, the, the cycles go round and round. The people were ignoring sins that, that may have even seemed small at the time, they may have seemed insignificant, but they sowed a seeds that eventually led it to their own destruction and built up to that point of chapter 19. So we must be on guard and ready to biblically deal with any sin that we find within ourselves. And as we do so, when we do that, We'll be building new patterns within our lives. We'll be establishing new habits, the pathway of righteousness, that which God has said is good and right. And hopefully we'll be teaching our children about what is good and right and how to repent of our sin and walk in the way of righteousness. And that leads to this third takeaway. For the parents within the room, teach your children the things of the Lord. The law of Moses states that the, the people of Israel were to teach the law of God to their children, to speak of them when they walk on the way, when they rise down, when they lie down, when they rise up. Here or there, there, we are to have the word of God on our lips, communicating the things of the Lord to our children and raising them up to know God and His word. Part of the failure of the people of Israel in the book of Judges is the failure to communicate and instill truth in their children. Lessons learned by the parents were not lessons communicated to the next generation. This is indicated, even that passage that we read earlier from Judges chapter 2. 
As soon as the judge died and the next generation was in place, the people forsook the way of the judge and became even worse than those who were before them. Now, I do want to be careful with this point here. I don't want to... We need to recognize that we don't have the power as parents to save our children. Right? That's not something that God has given to us. We recognize that even as parents, we can do everything right and still have children that forsake the Lord and go their own way. We, we don't have power over the spiritual lives of our children in, every, in everything that they choose to do. Such is the nature of fallen humanity. But at the same time, we do need to recognize that Scripture does put a great amount of responsibility upon parents to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We are, instruct, we are to be instructing our children in the things of the Lord, and we're to be showing them what it means to live a grace-filled life. We're to be teaching them how to repent and how to walk by faith. And again, though we don't have the ability to save our children, we do have the ability to give them every opportunity to respond in faith to the gospel and to try to seek to put as few stumbling blocks in their pathway as possible by how we live our lives and how we seek to instruct them. So parents, give heed to how you raise your children. And I very much am preaching that to myself as anyone else. Teach them the things of the Lord. But with that, children, you can learn from your parents' mistakes. I took a moment speaking to the parents in the room, talking to the children now. So Lily... Yakar, Azariah, Barnabas, Caden, Azariah, Abby, speaking to you now. Your parents aren't perfect people. (laughs) I'm going to. Absolutely, I'm going to. Your parents will sin. I will sin. They'll sin against you. They'll sin against God. They will fail you in ways that we won't even fully recognize or understand, perhaps till years later, if ever. But you have a choice in how you respond to the failures of even your own parents. Some individuals choose to hold bitterness within their hearts. They'll hold their parents in contempt. They'll be angry with their parents because of the wrongs done against them. And I just want to admonish you even now, don't, don't, rather than holding anger within your heart towards them, recognize that in the majority of cases, your parents really do genuinely love you. Even though they may struggle to express that in in ways that are good and right, they they did seek to raise you the best way that they knew how. And that's not to excuse sin. That's not to pass away hurt that is legitimate or minimize anything. But hopefully it can bring perspective. 
And if there are hurts that do need to be addressed, that it is good to seek to address those. Have those conversations, but approach them with grace and with an attitude of forgiveness. Because we do have to be warned that Christ did say that if we do refuse to forgive those who sin against us, so too our Heavenly Father will not forgive us. Some children will choose to abandon the faith of their parents. They may conclude, okay, if this is what your faith leads to, then I want no part of it. This kind of thinking is, is shallow, and it, it fails to understand that what the Scriptures teach about the, the human nature, that what's the, the condition of our own hearts even the best Christians in the world is still a sinner in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. So rather than reject the faith because of the sins of your parents, seek to know the only Savior that is able to correct those sins, the only Savior who is willing to forgive even your parents and consider that you too need that same forgiveness from this great God. Others may seek to ignore the sin and will then perpetuate that sin or act like everything is just fine and may conclude, you know, it's too difficult, it's too much of a hassle to try to change these things. So in the interest of maybe keeping this peace or, or what have you, I'm, not, I'm just not going to speak up, I'm not going to address it, I don't like conflict, so I'll just, I'll just let it slide all the while exhibiting the same faults and perpetuating the same problems, except as things continue to progress and things just tend to slip a little bit further away from biblical living and the sin becomes more ingrained, and so then we are on the pathway, drifting further and further away from the things of the Lord to the depths of Gibeah. Maybe not in your generation, maybe not in the generation of your children or even your grandchildren, but it is the direction that things go. And so the cycle of the judges can become the cycle that is present even within our own lives. But the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to perpetuate the sins of our parents. Even when our parents do fail, when they do walk in sin, and they make choices that is contrary to the Word of God, when they sin against us, when they sin against God, that doesn't have to be what we do as children. There is a cycle breaker. His name is Jesus Christ, and He can teach us how to walk away from the sin of our parents and walk in accordance with the Word of God. We can learn from our parents' mistakes in a way that doesn't drive us away from the only one who has the solution for our sins. Because it's ultimately only through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and His grace that keeps all of us from walking in the sins of our parents. It is only through Him that future relationships can be restored. We must not forsake the faith on account of our sins of our parents. Because the truth is, if we do forsake it, you don't end up finding life. 
We only find death. And that's the fifth takeaway from this book. Our own ways are the ways of death. Our own ways are the ways of death. This is something that we've hit time and time again as we've moved through this book. The end of the book contains that phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's really a summary of of that period of the book of Judges. It graphically illustrates why this is so dangerous. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And apparently that was something that was so important for the, for the author of, the, of these Proverbs because it was repeated again just a couple of chapters later in Proverbs 16. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is the way of death. And the reality is, is this is where we all start as sinful, fallen human beings. And Isaiah illustrates this by comparing us to stubborn, unintelligent sheep when he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, everyone, we have turned everyone to his own way. This describes all of us apart from the grace of Christ. If we remain in this state, the only, it only leads to death and suffering for ourselves, for those around us, for our future generations. But again, there's a way to break the cycle. There's a way out of this. It is not all bad news. It leads us to takeaway number six. Christ is King. Christ is the King. The other line that we see repeated at the end of Judges, we see it four times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. This is a theme we've been hitting over and over and again as we move through this book. We've titled the name of the series of this book study, In Need of a King. Israel will eventually have kings. We see King Saul, the first divinely appointed king in Israel. But he was not the one they needed. King David is going to be called a man after God's own heart, and yet even King David was not the one that they needed. The one that was needed did not arrive on the scene until Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. But as Isaiah wrote, he was rejected. He was despised by the men of the day, and he died on that cross which on the surface does not seem very kingly. Does not very seem very kingly at all. But we make no mistake. When we study the whole storyline of not just the book of Judges, but we see the whole storyline of the book of the whole Bible, and we see that Jesus Christ and He rose from the dead and He conquered sin and death. He ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He is currently ruling over His church as head over the church. And there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will rule and reign over all, when every eye will see Him, every knee will bow before Him, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King. So we must submit before Him even now. 
There are various texts within the New Testament that calls us to submit ourselves to God. James chapter 4, 4 verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. In Ephesians chapter 5, the church is even just assumed to be in a position of submission to Christ. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The church is to submit to Christ. Christ is the head of her church, of the church. And in submitting to Him, we recognize that we need His direction in our lives as reflected in the words of Solomon in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. We are called to trust in Christ's work on the cross. We're called to trust that His Word is true. Trust that, that He knows what is best for us in our lives, for our flourishing. And finally, our seventh takeaway. Rejoice in the mercy of God. Time and time again, as we walk through this book, we see the people of God rejecting the Lord, forsaking His Word. Time and time again, God was patient with them. He provided a deliverer from them. He didn't have to do that. By all rights, He should have left nothing but, but piles of ash heap like Sodom and Gomorrah hundreds of years prior. And yet, He didn't. He was merciful towards them. God is a God of justice, and He cares deeply about what is right. He's also a God of mercy and grace, and is willing to extend His forgiveness to those who will come in faith. And so we have the invitation of our Lord as proclaimed by Isaiah the prophet. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It is because of his mercy that we can be saved from our own selves, be saved from our own sin. It is because of his mercy that we can walk in newness of life and it's because of His mercy that we can live a life that, that honors and glorifies Him out of gratitude for all that He has done for us. And so with hearts of praise, of thanksgiving and gratitude, we ought to respond in rejoicing at the mercy of God and seeking to live a life that glorifies Him. Father, we do thank you so much for this book of Judges. Though a challenging book in many ways and a book that makes us uncomfortable with the details that are there, showing us the, our own depravity in so many ways, Lord, we are so very grateful because it also shows us your rich mercy. Though there are tales of warning within the book, there are also on display your graciousness to a wayward people. Lord, I pray that you would help us. 
Lord, I pray that we would take heed of, to know that our sin, we would never seek to minimize our own sin, never seek to make light of it, say it's only this little thing here, recognize that it sows the seeds that grow into greater and greater sin if let be. Pray that you'd help us to purge it out from among ourselves, that it might not be part of our lives. I pray that as parents, that that we would be seeking to teach our children that which is right, teaching them and raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. I pray that as children, all the children that are present here, all of us, Lord, as we think upon our parents and recognizing that our parents are not perfect individuals, I pray that the sins of our parents would not lead us to reject you or walk away from you, but would drive us to the only one who can save us from the sins of our parents. Lord, I do pray that we would live a life that glorifies you. Lord, I thank you for the mercy that we have in Christ. I pray that we can submit to him as king. We rejoice in your mercy today. Help us to glorify you in every sector of our lives. May we be fully submitted to you. We pray this in the name of your only son, Jesus Christ, the cycle breaker. Amen.